Hello, and welcome to What is X? I'm your host, Justin E.H. Smith, and this is a podcast for The Point magazine. As regular listeners will know, on each episode, we talk about a given X, where that variable is filled in by some particularly difficult concept, such as the ones that were discussed in Plato's dialogues through the personage of Socrates. By the end of the conversation, much as in Plato's dialogues, we try to determine whether we agree, whether we disagree, or whether we have ended in aporia, which is to say, a dead end. Um, sometimes it's not so clear, but we do our best to make a determination as to one of those three. So today I'm talking with a guest about the difficult question of authorship. What is authorship? And my guest is Jonathan Egid, who is currently writing about a very difficult, you could say, limit case of authorship, where we have a text, we have an author, and we don't know what, whether this author exists or not, and yet we still need to talk about the text. Jonathan, Welcome. Hello. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this uh, text and its purported author? Absolutely, yeah. So, um, in 1852, uh, as a depressed Capuchin missionary in the highlands of Ethiopia who discovers this really remarkable uh, book, uh, this guy's called Justo Durbino, uh, and he finds uh, two manuscripts. Uh, around 1852 that he sends back to his patron uh, Antoine d'Abadie in Paris. Uh, and this text that he's discovered is really a sort of singular work in his uh, manuscript collecting activities. Most of the stuff he finds in Ethiopia are sort of theological works, historical works, things like that. But this book that he's found is uh, like a philosophical autobiography um, with a sort of section about the life of this figure of a guy called Zeri Jacob who's born in, uh, as it says, in the lands of the priests of Aksum. And it details his early life, um, his uh, quibbles with people uh, at court and the way that he gets eventually expelled from his homeland by political strife, where he uh, makes, for, makes for the wilderness, finds himself a nice cave, sits down and meditates uh, and comes up with this really interesting and um, surprisingly, to, to some people, sophisticated philosophical system. Um, and this text gets sent back uh, after Durbino um, gets kicked out of Ethiopia by some sort of civil strife of his own day um, and sits in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris uh, until, it's, until it's discovered uh, 50 years later by the first um, sort of European scholars to start to work on this. Um, and I suppose that's, that's kind of where the authorship question becomes a little bit tricky because... Uh, after about 20 years of people discussing this and starting to talk about this and starting to incorporate this work of a, what one of them calls a lonely Abyssinian freethinker mm -hmm. into his, into their histories of philosophy and into their conceptions of Ethiopian literature, uh, a guy called Carlo Contirosini mm -hmm. comes along and says that actually this text is a forgery. It was not written by a 17th century, uh, Ethiopian scholar called Zeri Jacob, 
but was in fact written by the guy who supposedly discovered it, mm-hmm. Justo Durbino. And this was around 1920, right? Yeah, 1920s when mm-hmm. Contirocini publishes the article, mm-hmm. yeah. So what happens next? So um, Contirocini is really one of the, the sort of the greatest scholars of um, Ethiopian literature and Ethiopian languages of the century. And his argument is really seen as being uh, very persuasive by lots of people. It's basically based on um, the testimony of an Ethiopian who was part of the Catholic mission mm. that Justo Durbino was part of, who says that he saw Durbino getting up to some suspicious stuff mm-hmm. with a couple of his mates. Um, <laughs> and this Ethiopian missionary, Tekla Haimanot, was not too impressed. He really had the zeal of the convert, and he didn't like that Durbino was just spending all of his time, um, you know, messing about with Ethiopian languages, writing these texts. Um, and Teklahomenot basically uh, denounces him and says that that this was that this was all all his doing that the mm-hmm. text wasn't real. So people people sort of take Contidosini's argument um, as as basically correct, and the text starts to be sort of written out of um, future histories of Ethiopian literature, of histories of philosophy, until about the 1970s where people start really to make the argument once again that the text is not a forgery, mm-hmm. that it's actually a legitimate, real Ethiopian work from the 17th century. Um, and since then, there's a sort of been a really big scholarly argument going back and forth mm-hmm. you know, for the last 50 years, really, about whether this text was in fact, written by a 17th century Ethiopian or a 19th century Italian. We know at least that uh, Giusto Durbino, the 19th century Italian, was proficient in Ge'ez, the ecclesiastical Ethiopic language, and was interested in showing off his writing skills in Ge'ez, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I was was just looking today, actually, uh, at one of his uh, dictionaries. He's got a dictionary of French, Amharic uh, and Ge'ez, this, this language that you just mentioned, that the text is actually written in. And he certainly had a really decent level of it. Um, in the letters that he writes back to this, uh, to his patron, Anthony Dabadi, uh, Antoine Dabadi, he, um, he talks a lot about his, his mastery of it, how he's the best European to be able to understand the language. He chastises his patron for not being able to speak it well enough. Um, and so it certainly seems like he was capable of doing this. I guess the question that struck a lot of people is why on earth would you do something like that? You know, why would you go to all of this effort Mm -hmm. to write, you know, a really substantial philosophical treatise Mm -hmm. in a long dead language Mm -hmm. to invent all of these philosophical terms that you have to use to express these, to do so many impressive linguistic feats? Mm -hmm. Only to disclaim responsibility for it yourself, to not make yourself the author. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we've discussed this before, but it seems to me that part of the answer to this question might have to do with uh, the culture, broadly speaking, the culture of forgery in the 19th century, where people had different uh, ideas about um, what authorship is than we do in the present day, uh, where we're particularly eager to make, to claim our written work as our intellectual property, to uh, attach it to our orchid ID, and once and for all to kind of anchor it in our identity. But there are many other reasons in the history of writing uh, to 
produce a text, right? Exactly. Um, and do you think there might even, even though the 19th century is not that long ago, do you think there might have been other dynamics in the culture of authorship in the period that would explain um, uh, why someone would do this? For sure. Well, I mean, to, to go a little bit further back than the point that you mentioned, one of the things that's strange about if the work is written in the 17th century is that there are very few Ethiopian manuscripts where anyone claims authorship. Mm-hmm. Generally, right. texts are not written by an author, but are you know composed by a scribe. And you right. know, if the name comes in the book anywhere, it's to say, you know, I, a worthless servant of God, mm-hmm. you know, wrote this text for my wealthy patron who, you know, must be glorified in some way. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if we have these sort of two extremes, you know, the sort of, you know, total self-effacement, the not wanting to say anything about oneself as an author whatsoever to merely be the sort of medium for mm. some particular idea or, you know, just the person who's, you know, the sort of the craftsman who, you know, writes writes the thing down and makes the physical artifact mm-hmm. rather than the sort of, you know, godlike genius author who, you know, plucks the idea out of nowhere or, you yeah. know, the sort of contemporary you know, um, lead author on a sort of, you know, academic, academic right. article sort of thing. Right. There are all sorts of in-betweens and the idea that Durbino might have been the author of it is really interestingly explored by um, a person who I think has written the most interesting thing on this in, in recent decades, Anais Rion, mm-hmm. um, at the CNRS. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's got this idea of there being a kind of dialectic between uh, self-effacement and, um, you know, self-promotion in mm-hmm. a way. That he's somebody, Durbino in this case, would be someone who really wants to get his ideas out there. He wants people to understand them. He wants his books to be read. Mm-hmm. He wants his books to have a reception in, you know, uh, European scholarly world of which mm-hmm. he feels like he's been unfairly excluded mm-hmm. in some way um you know mainly by by being poor by being this missionary really over on the other side of the world he thinks no one's going to listen to him mm-hmm. and the idea is maybe that he can sneak his books mm-hmm. into the great libraries of europe you know he can have people read him mm-hmm. but only if he pretends to be somebody that he's not right that people might be more interested in reading the work of right. a 17th century singular genius yeah rather than yeah you know, stupid old him. Yeah, that sounds like an interesting psychological uh, theory of uh, what was really going on. And of course, there are a lot of uh, parallel examples of authors taking on parallel identities in order to pass their work off in a way that's more palatable for the targeted public right do you think this is plausible for Jobino, or do you think um do you think there's something else going on yeah i think it's it's definitely plausible but in in quite a strange way it's plausible in the sense that if everybody knew that this was just a text written by a 19th century missionary in ethiopia i don't think people would talk about it nearly as much as they would mm-hmm. so if he was gambling on the fact that writing it in the voice of his alter ego of Zed Jacob mm-hmm. would make the book more widely read and more widely studied. Mm-hmm. I think he was definitely right. You know, he was onto a, onto a good thing there. Mm-hmm. One of the questions that's quite strange about that is why it is that putting it in the mouth of a 17th century Ethiopian mm-hmm. would have been the way to do that, given that part of the sort of cultural politics of the debate that we spoke about of people either affirming that this thing has to be an Ethiopian work or denying that it could have been mm. was based around the sort of, you know, a complicated cultural politics that in the case of Conti Rossini at yeah. least 
was quite possibly involved in denying that Ethiopians had the capacity to philosophize. Right, right, it just right. wasn't the sort of society that could do it. Right. So it seems strange then that to have his work taken seriously, he would put it in the mouth of people who were not taken seriously as right, philosophers. Right. But a lot could have changed between the time of Giusto Trubino uh, and the time of Conti Rossini, right? Absolutely. Um, and, it, and it did. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and um, Conti Rossini was associated with Italian fascism, right? And there was an ideological bent to his denial. It wasn't just that he had heard uh, uh, someone reporting that Giusto Trubino was up to no good with his mates, but also that he had an ideological agenda to deny uh, the capacity of Ethiopians to uh, produce philosophical texts, yeah. right? Well, um, well whether, whether or not he was um, denying the Hatata in order to buttress the, um, you know, Mussolini's arguments for, for fascism, I don't exactly know. But what mm. we do know is that at pretty much the same time that he's writing these denials, He's also writing articles with titles like Ethiopia is incapable of civil progress, arguing that Ethiopia should be colonized because it's just not at the right civilizational stage. And obviously there's a story to be told about the way in which uh, the sort of capacity for abstract thought or the capacity for philosophizing was bound up in a particular narrative with the capacity for political Mm self-determination such that truly civilized people do philosophy and truly Mm -hmm. civilized people have the, you know, capacity for political autonomy and political self-realization. And those that don't have one don't have the other. Right. So you can see how they would be connected. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, What changed around the 1970s? I'm, I'm trying to work us towards the general question of what counts as authorship Mm. and whether you need an author to have an authored text. Um, but first we need to kind of fill out some of the gaps in this story for, um, listeners who've never heard of Zara Yaakov before. Um, what, uh, changed around the 1970s? Yeah. So if, if we're writing, if Conti Rossini is writing in the 1920s and the 1930s in the context of uh, fascist aggression, in the context of the very sort of last gasps of a scramble for Africa, in the 1970s, the authors, um, Ethiopian scholars like Amsalu Akilu and Alemiahu Mogez, and later on, uh, the great Canadian Jesuit who said that while he was Canadian by birth, he was Ethiopian by choice, Claude Sumner, um, they were, they're writing in a context of the sort of decolonial reassertion mm. of indigenous uh, intellectual traditions. Mm-hmm. And so there's obviously a cultural politics on that side as well of wanting to say, no, this thing is Ethiopian. You know, you're refuting the, uh, the Conti Rossini idea or the, you know, the sort of early 20th century idea that there is this, you know, incapacity for philosophizing by saying, no, look, we have a 17th century philosopher. He was coming up with these ideas at the same time as, you know, Descartes was doing the Discord de la Méthode. And this proves, you know, we are capable of thinking. We do have all of these, you know, um, grand traditions that we can celebrate in our own way. Mm. And it really starts to become, you know, not just reasserted as a valuable part of um, African philosophy, but as being a sort of a foundation of it in some sense, mm. you know, like uh, something that we can sort of really build a larger tradition on that can be a, a source of pride in that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Claude Sumner, the the Jesuit and the the scholar who wrote the multi-volume work, I think it's called The History of Ethiopian Philosophy. Yeah, just Ethiopian philosophy. Oh, just Ethiopian philosophy. He managed to thrive in Ethiopia under the um, rather um, severe... um, uh, communist dictatorship, right? Which which uh, came to power in 1975, I think. Is that Four, right? I think, yeah. 74. Um, uh, and it was during that period, under the dictatorship, mm-hmm. right, that um, that uh, Zara Yakub studies kind of took off in Ethiopia. Am, am I am I getting that right? I think so. I mean, there's there's all sorts of interesting stories to be told about the history of the philosophy department in Addis Ababa mm. and uh, and since. So Sumner was brought over actually by Haile Selassie uh-huh, to uh-huh. Um, to sort of head up some of that. I think Haile Selassie was educated by Jesuits and he mm. uh, he had a lot of a lot of faith in their their sort of teaching prowess. Mm-hmm. So he comes over with Haile Selassie. Mm-hmm. begins to sort of help um set up this this philosophy department and then obviously we have this you know cataclysmic shift from divine uh, imperial monarchy to communist dictatorship in a period of a year or so mm-hmm. uh, and he continues to uh, to sort of you know write and develop these these things at the time um and yeah i suppose it is in those years really with with his backing that this stuff starts to starts to really take off mm-hmm. uh, in ethiopia at least um and more, more broadly across the African continent. Um, but I don't think it's really until, I mean, or at least what I'm aware of, um, until the 20th century, really, where, uh, the 21st century, mm. where it really starts to sort of play into more contemporary debates mm-hmm. about, you know, decolonizing, um, mm-hmm. you know, diversifying the history of philosophy mm-hmm. curriculum, where Zeli Jacob is really seized upon mm-hmm. as being a possibility because he is an author. Mm-hmm. who is non-canonical. He mm-hmm. is a person from a part of the world that we don't have philosophers from typically. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting that for all of these arguments, right, right from the Contirocini through to the decolonial argument, through to the contemporary, you know, debates in, in Western academia about these things, mm-hmm. all of them depend very centrally on who the author is, mm-hmm. right? It's not just a case about, well, we've got this interesting text. What are the ideas in here? Do we want to include this? Do we want to not include this? Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, if this is written by a 17th century Ethiopian, it mm. can do the work we want to do of diversifying, mm-hmm. of reasserting a, mm-hmm. a you know, cultural heritage. And if it's not written by him, then whatever. You know. Yeah, right. Um, now, that brings up an interesting question about the work itself, that, and it's worth spending at least a few minutes on that. Uh, you know, I've done work on another African mm-hmm. philosopher who definitely existed, Anton Wilhelm Amo, who was active in the early 18th century in Germany and wrote in Latin. And everything Amo wrote um, was squarely within the frame of early 18th century academic German philosophy, right? There's nothing African about it. Um, Zara Yakub presents a very different case because he is, if he exists, he is um, speaking to his place and time, and he's talking about a world that is distinctly Ethiopian, even though it uh, uh, has uh, connections uh, to a much 
broader region that includes uh, the Levant and the broader Mediterranean world and uh, Iberia as well. So uh, what is going on in the Hatata exactly? What's he trying to do? Yeah, well, the I think the fundamental problem of it is the resolution of human difference mm-hmm. and of the ways of understanding the ways that human beings differ from each other and how it is that given these differences, we can avoid all murdering each other. Mm-hmm. So he's he's writing this at a time um, when there is, there've been sort of almost a century of really brutal wars in Ethiopia, first between the Ethiopian Empire, which is in the highlands and is Christian, uh, and the Adel Sultanate, which is a lowland uh, Muslim polity. And they really, they sort of get sucked into uh, what's kind of the first global proxy war in mm-hmm. the, the, the Adal are armed by the Ottomans. These are the first time that firearms have been used up in the, in the highlands of Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And the Portuguese start to arm the Ethiopians in response. Mm-hmm. Um, they're initially interested in Ethiopia because they think that's where the kingdom of Prester John is. Mm-hmm. And Prester John's this great, uh, you know, uh, Christian uh, ruler in the East who's going to help join up with the, uh, with the Catholics to help take right. back Jerusalem. And he, and basically the Portuguese helped the Ethiopians, um, win this battle, uh, at the end. It's, um, the son of Vasco da Gama, I think, is mm-hmm. supposed to be one of the ones who fires the, fires the shot that kills Ahmed Granya, the leader of the, uh, of the Adal Sultanate. Uh-huh. Uh, it's Ahmed Granya, which means Ahmed the left-handed, who's, uh-huh. uh, who's a very sort of, he's still a bit of a boogeyman in, in Highland Ethiopia today. <laughs> Fascinating. And, um, Basically, after they they win the war, the traffic between Portugal and Ethiopia, um, the the, the musketmen get replaced by missionaries and lots of Jesuits flood Highland Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. And at the start, they're a fairly innocuous presence. No one cares too much about what's going on. But slowly they start to get influence at the court. They start to take on a lot of the functions that the Ethiopian church used to have of sort of mediating between um, different polities um, of, you know, sort of being large landowners. Um, and of educating um, the people at the court. Mm-hmm. And the emperor who is around at the time of Zeri Yaakob, Susenyos, actually converts yeah. to Catholicism. Right, right. That's around 1620? Yeah, that's 1622, I think, Susenyos okay, yeah. converts. Mm-hmm. Um, and this just immediately sparks a really big civil war between mm-hmm. the followers of the old religion and mm-hmm. the followers of the new. And it's this war that forces Zeri Yaakob to, to flee his home. Mm-hmm. And really, I think he's, you know, he's... He's reflecting on, um, and the 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 newly Catholic Emperor Susenyos has it out for Zeriakov, doesn't he? He right. he's, he's um he wants his head for some reason. Exactly, yeah. So um, Zeriakov is denounced by um, his enemy uh, Walder Johannes um, mm-hmm. for um, inciting people to rise up against the Catholics and kill the king or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Zeriakov insists he didn't do. You know, he's. In his discussions, he talks about this very ecumenical attitude that he has. You know, I studied the books of the the holy books, how the Ferenc, the Catholics, interpret them, and mm-hmm. how the Cop, the Ethiopians, interpret them. Um, but neither of them were, you know, in tune with my reason, so I just mm-hmm. kept silent. Um, but obviously, in in divided times like that, keeping silent doesn't really please anybody. Right. So he uh, he he gets chased out. And it's there that he starts to sort of reflect on how on earth it is that people who think such different things can avoid killing each other. Right, right, right. So it 
seems like there are some important philosophical themes familiar from uh, European philosophical texts of roughly the same period, uh, namely um, reflections on the possibility of toleration. Is that mm. a theme, would you say? Yeah, it's interesting because it's not explicitly about trying to come up with a, a political solution to mm. it, really. Um, you know, if you imagine that he's just off in his cave thinking about all of these horrible conflicts and he's, I think it's, it's not about toleration so much because his focus is primarily theological. He wants mm -hmm. to understand how God could allow his creation to have such different interpretations, how it is that we can all get things so wrong mm -hmm. um, and how it is that we could potentially work out, you know, what is true. Yeah. You know, there's um, all of these different interpretations, but truth, he says, is one. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we get to that? Um <sighs> He's been called a free thinker. I, I, I remember in the uh, early um, Russian translation by Turayev from 1904, uh, it's published in a series called Abyssinian Freethinkers. Mm. I might be the only one in the series as far as I know. But um, uh, uh, first of all, is that a fair characterization? And second of all, is there something... Uh, deistic, would you say, about his conclusions, namely that none of the sects, neither the Copts, nor the Muslims, nor the Catholics, uh, has a monopoly on the truth, yet plainly, by use of my reason, I can uh, establish the certainty of the existence of an all-powerful creator? Yeah, so that's, I mean, I think that's really the sort of the central question in terms of the comparisons with European philosophers mm -hmm. from the same time, because his answer to you know, uh, there being all of these different groups of people, how can we work out what it is that God really wants? How can we work out what creation is really like? Mm -hmm. He says the answer is, well, the term he uses is labuna, mm -hmm. right? And this is some sort of faculty of intelligence or understanding yeah. that allows us to discern right from wrong, to literally sort of see, um, you know, truth and falsity, good and evil, and all of the rest of that. And the idea is that he proceeds from what this faculty shows us and he finds all of the other religions wanting. Mm -hmm. um, he says that, you know, this demonstrates that a lot of traditional practices of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, but also of Catholicism and also of Islam and also of Judaism are obviously wrong because the mm -hmm. natural light or the light of intelligence, the Bahana Lebana, show us um, what is correct mm -hmm. and what isn't. And in that sense, lots of people have seen him as being a kind of rationalist mm -hmm. in some sense, yeah. proceeding from reason rather than from... Um, dogma or from authority. Right, right, right. Like Descartes. Yeah, yeah. that was the big thing. That was mm -hmm. Sumner's big idea, that mm -hmm. he was a rationalist at the same time as Descartes, who mm -hmm. was coming up with very similar ideas. Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure about that. Um, the person who teaches Meagers is a, a scholar of um, uh, Ethiopian Christianity. And one thing that he's been constantly emphasizing is that there are some fairly traditional style religious references in there. Mm -hmm. The Psalms are quoted in, you know, almost verbatim on almost every other line. You know, mm -hmm. he's really philosophizing with the author of the Psalms mm -hmm. as well. Another interesting case of authorship. Of, right. Uh, <laughs> whoever it is that wrote the Psalms and mm -hmm. thinking about how their philosophizing worked. Mm -hmm. But he's, you know, he's constantly working through things from a relatively you know, not a conventional religious standpoint because he is much harsher in his criticisms 
than any Ethiopian writer of that time would normally have been. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's really quite violent in his condemnations of the detestable wisdom of Moses and of the sort of, you know, the the contradictions and the ridiculousness of of Christian ideas. Mm -hmm. But whether he really departs fully from Christianity, I'm I'm not so sure. Right, right, Um, right. Right. Now, when he's writing, and this is something that brings me back to the Conti Rossini's strange judgment. I mean, Ethiopia in 1622 is not the depths of the Amazon or mm. Polynesia, right? This is a Catholic um, uh, uh, empire, and it's a place that is in constant uh, traffic with a much larger world of monotheistic religions Mm. and so on, right? So in that respect, um, it shouldn't be all that surprising to find someone in 17th century Ethiopia who has available to him the same conceptual and argumentative resources as you might find, for Mm. example, in uh, the uh, intellectual context in which René Descartes, educated by the Jesuits, grew up, right? Um, why should we, why would we think that Ethiopia must be such a radically alien intellectual world? Mm. I guess, I guess two reasons really. Number one, that the historiography about Ethiopia has often been this, um, there's this wonderful line somewhere in, in Gibbon about the Ethiopians, you know, being off in their mountain fastness, you know, asleep to the world, which, mm-hmm. you know, didn't recognize it in its turn or something. And this idea of it being this sort of mountain fortress, totally isolated, uh-huh. you know, a Christian country in a sea of paganism in Islam, uh-huh. uh, has really been a sort of dominant historiographical model. And the idea that it's something very much closed off rather than connected to the rest of the world was really prevalent. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second reason, I suppose, was just that it's in Africa mm-hmm. and a lot of the way that the, uh, you know, the intellectual justifications for colonialism were working at the time meant that it really had to be closed off um, from more general intellectual resources at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's complicated in the case of Ethiopia because mm-hmm. there's also this big movement in particular from, um, you know, uh, Orientalists at the time to say that, well, Ethiopia is in Africa. Mm-hmm. But it's not really of Africa. Mm-hmm. You know, really, this is a Middle Eastern country. It's mm-hmm. a Semitic speaking country. It's mm-hmm. a Christian country. Mm-hmm. It has a writing system. It has plough agriculture. It has all of these things. And so it has to be sort of separate in some way. Mm-hmm. So maybe we can sort of make it part of another, a mm-hmm. different world in that sense. But really one which is going to be, strictly speaking, sort of pre-philosophical. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that I'm trying to do in my research at the moment is, even though I am quite often... You know, I changed my mind about who wrote it between Monday and Tuesday, mm-hmm. but I'm often persuaded by the idea that this is written by Justo Durbino. Mm-hmm. But one thing I'm interested in doing anyway is to, to sort of say that, you know, to give a proof of possibility that it could well have been written mm-hmm. in 17th century Ethiopia, because this is a world in which we have Islamic intellectual traditions right. amongst the Muslims of Ethiopia. We have a very long tradition of the translation of religious theological texts uh, into Gers, you know, the Bible's first translated into Gers in fourth century, I think. Mm-hmm. And we have, we have books of philosophy in mm-hmm. Gers from more than a hundred years before. Mm-hmm. There's the Matsafa Tabiban, the Matsafa Falsafa, mm-hmm. which are these sort of compendiums of ancient Greek and Arabic philosophers. Mm-hmm. Um, and also of figures that we wouldn't expect in the histories of philosophy, like Solomon and David 
And by the time they arrive in, in Gurs, in, in Ethiopian languages, they, they've taken on a very different character. Mm-hmm. You know, there's Plato taking a, a tooth from, uh, from the mouth of a lion, you know, <laughs> mixed with St. Jerome. We've got, um, you know, all sorts of very strange things. The story of Diogenes and the king mm-hmm. has become Socrates telling the emperor of Ethiopia that, you know, all things of this world are mere vanity, speaking like a desert father. Yeah. You know, there's... I mean, this is something that uh, Peter Adamson, um, the host of another um, widely uh, uh, listened to podcast, History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, uh, has emphasized that not just in Ethiopia, but throughout medieval Europe as well, there was widespread interest in what you can call popular philosophy, where you have... um, so to speak, moral exempla being uh, passed along um, often through tales of the lives of the philosophers, right? Like Aristotle being ridden by Phyllis, mm. for example, is a famous one. Um, and in these uh, moral tales, in these exempla that were typical of the popular philosophy traditions, um, the philosophers often get... Um, uh, uh, portrayed as sages or as representatives of wisdom traditions. And even in respectable historiography in the early modern period, um, like Gassendi, Pierre Gassendi, for example, there's often the, the beginnings of philosophy are often thought to be in wisdom traditions among the seven sages Mm. of Greece, people like Solon and so on, who were not philosophers in our sense, but were, you know, doing uh, work, uh, or not, I shouldn't say doing work, that's the wrong Mm. way to put it, who were, um, who were simply wise, right? They didn't uh, prefer arguments, they just embodied wisdom, and they knew the motions of the heavens and how plants grow from seeds and stuff like that. That's wisdom, right? Um, And I gather that Ethiopia was, um, and can easily be shown to be, uh, part of the broader circulation of this, uh, these traditions of popular philosophy. That's easy to show. What's maybe harder to show is how you get someone like uh, Zara Yacoub in the 17th century, who doesn't just um, give us uh, tales of the wise, but uh, also gives us um, a priori arguments from his own, the, the power of his own intellect, right? Exactly. Which is something really quite original and um, sui generis in Ethiopia, is it not? It is, exactly. And I guess, I guess there's two things to say on that. Number one, which is just that it's an interesting point in the historiography of philosophy that we tend to, when we look back now, sort of not include as being so serious those, you know, sages, those popular philosophers, people who are dispensing wisdom, and we just want to find the arguments. Yeah, right. And I don't know if that's something that starts with Brooker or with, you know, the German historiographers of philosophy, Mm. but we really look for arguments. We want to see, you know, the logic and the metaphysics, not the sort of ethical teaching so much. Mm -hmm. So maybe if we had, you know, if we were happy to include those popular philosophers in, it would be easier to see these earlier Ethiopian texts as being Mm. the sort of foundations of thought there. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that we pay so much attention to the Hatatara is that it does have those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is an explanation potentially of why a 17th century thinker would 
have come up with these sorts of ideas. And that's because he mentions that, you know, he's in conversation with the Ferenc, with these, mm-hmm. uh, with these Catholic scholars. Mm-hmm. And we know that these Catholic scholars were on a big mission of bringing books over there. They always write that, you know, like we need more books from Portugal because, you know, this is mm. how we're going to, the Ethiopians are really impressed with our nice big golden laid books, right? Mm-hmm. Let's bring more of those. Uh, and one of the collections that gets sent over um, from Portugal to Ethiopia. From Portugal to Ethiopia mm. is the the Library of Francisco Suarez, the one of the greatest right. uh, late scholastic philosophers. So we know that there are all sorts of the personal library, the personal library of Francisco Suarez. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, when I was reading it, I was sort of thinking, wow. They sent over the library of a guy who has the same name as Francisco Suarez, <laughs> and it turns out to be the very same. Yeah, amazing. Um, so we know that there was Aquinas, we know that there was Augustine in Ethiopia. They may, may well have been translated into Gers. Mm-hmm. Um, we unfortunately don't have any any examples of it anymore because after the war, um, there are huge uh, cases of what I learned was called bibliocasm, you know, the mass burning of books. Oh, right, yeah. First yeah. by the Jesuits of Ethiopians and then by, uh, of, of Jesuit books, and, and then the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know that these texts were known. Um, you know, there are obviously all sorts of deductive arguments in there. So perhaps mm-hmm. we've got another sort of strand of intellectual influence, which could plausibly explain mm-hmm. such a thing be written. Mm-hmm. What about the, I mean, you know, this has been my suspicion at certain points, the, um, uh, broadly speaking, the Iberian tradition of spiritual exercises, mm-hmm. such as we see in, um, Saint Ignatius of Loyola or Teresa of Avila that some scholars have also seen as echoing a century later in the work of René Descartes. The meditations are a sort of spiritual exercise, Mm -hmm. even though it's uh, uh, torn from its original explicitly uh, religious context mm-hmm. in um, in Descartes and turned into a rationalist um, a program of first philosophy. Could we also see that Iberian Catholic tradition as echoing in Zara Jacob? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, he's he's in his cave. He's there with, uh, he says he takes three ounces of gold and the Psalter of David. And after he's got his food for the day, either from begging or just foraging for berries, he's just sat there with nothing to do. And he says, you know, I sat there and I meditated. Mm -hmm. And quite possibly by meditations, he means something not too dissimilar than, you know, Teresa of Avila or Descartes would have meant by that. Mm -hmm. Sit down. It's a systematic sort of step by step reflection. It involves, you know, doubt. It involves, you know, sort of, you know, getting to a higher consciousness of God. You know, almost all of these uh, the chapters, which I suppose I don't think they're divided up like meditations in mm-hmm. in the Hatata itself, but they begin with these sort of you know conversations with God, you know, and behold, I thought, you know, what if God is not really there, or what if you know the the ears He created do not hear my prayers, or something like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always intended to have that same sort of movement back, sort of you know, of doubt or of you know concern about well how could god allow evil how could god's you know original pure message become corrupted in such a way Mm. and it ends with this sort of exaltation because by giving us this faculty of reason he allows us to see what is right and allows us to see what is wrong Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. are there are there uh, difficulties of translation here as your gaze gets uh, Mm -hmm. better and you start to discern um the original connotations of these terms i mean the one thing you told me about is 
is this this concept that you've already um, mentioned, Le Benin, uh, uh excuse my pronunciation, which can be uh, uh, translated as reason uh, or perhaps intellect, but also, um, if I understand correctly, uh, is uh, has a connotation uh, associated with the heart, uh, which is to say, at least in um, Greek and Latin-based uh, philosophical traditions, something quite distinct from the faculty of reason. In fact, something that gets in the way of the proper use of the reason. Yet, if I understand correctly, um, in Ethiopia, the heart and the intellect are, uh, so to speak, part of the same system, right? Mm -hmm. And are denoted mm -hmm. by the same term. That's really strange, um, from, from my point of view anyway. But what's troubling is that depending on how you translate this, it could either look very similar mm -hmm. to, say, Descartes, or very different from Descartes. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, like you said, uh, this term Lebuna, uh, so it comes from the root Lebowa, uh, which is to comprehend, uh, to understand something. And that's also the root from which you get Lub, which is, yeah, the heart. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about this faculty, um, because it's a faculty which is not just about seeing what's true and what's false, but is about what's right and what's wrong. Right. You never know whether it's sort of, you know, if you to say, you know, follow your heart, not your head, you know, follow your lab, not your lab. Right. You know, it doesn't really, it doesn't, it doesn't really give you so much guidance there. And a translation which just says reason mm. every time in front of that really does miss out on a lot of what could be, what could be meant. And it's hard to be consistent in that because there are, there are sentences in the text where, it has to say, you know, this is the one I mentioned before, you know, the interpretations of the, the Catholics and the interpretations of the Orthodox. He says, you know, they were not in harmony with my harmony is another tricky one to know how to right. translate. But, you know, they were not in harmony with my reason. So I hid all of the thoughts in my heart. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got the same word with the same root there. And right. it's hard to know, you know. Do you say they were not in harmony with my heart, so I hid them in my heart? They weren't in <laughs> harmony with my reason, so I hid them in my inner. Right. It's it's really difficult to know what to do with that. And the different translations that people come up with are very loaded. You know, Sumner had his idea that Descartes was, you know, that Zeddy Jacob was like Descartes. Yeah. So unsurprisingly, he chooses to translate it by reason. Right. Um you know, a new translation which is coming out now chooses to be what I think is a bit more philosophically neutral and just calls it intelligence when it's a faculty most of the time. Right. But the one thing that would be interesting just to return to Durbino mm -hmm. is, like I mentioned, Durbino has a dictionary right. of Gers. And in his one, he has particular translations for Lebowa, for, you know, Lebona, for all of these, these different variations on the terms. And one thing that could be quite interesting is to translate according to Durbino's own thing and to see if right. that turns out. That could probably provide some evidence about the question of authorship, couldn't it, right? Because uh, if you follow Durbino's uh, suggestions in his dictionary, um, you might find something that looks more like what you could infer Durbino himself had in mind, right? Exactly, mm. exactly. And you can sort of see, is this a term which is probably just using to directly translate 
something that he's read about before, like, mm. you know, Raison um, or, you know, Braccio um, or something like that? Mm. Or is this a term which is taken from pre-existing Ethiopian text that somebody like Zeriakob might have had access to? Mm-hmm. Obviously, mm-hmm. this isn't decisive if Zeriakob had access to Latin texts as well or right. Latin translations of Gers. Right. And obviously, Dubino's Gers was very impressive. So. Right. It's it's really one of the tricky things in trying to do the sort of philological detective work about right. who might have written what. Right. What can really count as influence because you sort of think, well, maybe Durbino's dictionary entries are influenced mm. by having read the Hatata. Right. It's not the, that other way around that the Hatata is in such a way because Durbino put his right. own terms in there. Right. But he's written his dictionary like that because of what he found in the Hatata. Yeah. So so it's not it wouldn't be conclusive, would it? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, now. I think maybe to try to get closer to the general question yeah. about authorship, um, hoping that the readers are at least somewhat up to speed now, or the listeners are somewhat <laughs> up to speed on uh, the uh, details of the Zara Yakub case. I think you, and I don't want to mischaracterize you, mm-hmm. but I think you're of the view that in the end, this text is valuable either way Absolutely. and that in a sense to put it more starkly it doesn't matter right whether it was written by Zara Jacob or uh Giusto Durbino uh whether it was written by a 17th century Ethiopian or a 19th century Italian um how could it not matter? <laughs> um, don't we care who wrote what? And if we don't, why do we uh, put authors' names on books? Why do people get in trouble for plagiarism, mm. et cetera, et cetera? Mm. Um, um, that's maybe the direction we should try to move sure, things in. Sure, <laughs> sure. Well, I, I'll, I'll tell you first why I think it's interesting in either case and why I don't care as much, at least, as some other people have mm-hmm. about who it is that wrote it. I guess, number one, just that the ideas in the book are interesting, mm-hmm. I think. I think that the you know, the problematic that he has of there are all these different kinds of humans and they really can't agree with each other. And maybe what it is that we have in common with each other is the sort of way that we can try and resolve those differences. And this is based in some sort of uh, faculty that all of us have equally. That's Mm -hmm. one of his interesting things that he says that, you know, the, the French and the Copt and the Jews and the Muslims, they all have it equally. Men and women have it equally. Um, and that this is something which is, you know, doesn't separate out our epistemic grasp on the world from our ethical grasp of it. That's mm-hmm. just an idea I find interesting. Mm-hmm. And whether that's from an Ethiopian scholar or a uh, 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 Capuchin missionary, I don't really care. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested mm-hmm. in that idea anyway. Um, the second thing is, I mean, I suppose a connected point to that is it's just quite a beautiful book. I mean, the, uh, the, the images that it has in there, the sort of idea of this, you know, person who's really out and down on their luck, mm-hmm. um, coming up with these ideas to try and make sense of his own circumstances and then putting his ideas into, uh, you know, into action in the end of the book where he just goes down and lives this very simple, boring life, mm-hmm. um, is, is really, is really quite appealing. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is that I'm really interested in the way that, uh, you know, philosophy comes to exist in a particular mm-hmm. language. Mm-hmm. And whoever it is that wrote this book did the pretty amazing task of really forging a whole new conceptual vocabulary mm-hmm. in a language for which it didn't exist in that way anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, if that was Durbino, then 
it was an amazing job as well. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I suppose it's interesting in different ways, and this is one way that the author does really matter, mm-hmm. that if it's a 17th century work, it's interesting as a really original work of mm-hmm, philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. It's somebody came up with ideas at a time that they just didn't really exist almost anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whereas it's not so original if it's by somebody who read all of those books, mm-hmm. which right, it supposedly right. presages, right? Right. So the question of originality is not there so much depending on when the author lived. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting for different reasons mm-hmm. if it's if it's if it's written then, you know, it's this incredible act of cultural immersion and mm-hmm. hybridity, you know, for an Italian who was only in Ethiopia for ten years to mm-hmm. come mm-hmm. up with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Today in the contemporary political context, mm-hmm. um uh Durbino might be uh taken to task for not staying in his lane, as we say. Oh, yeah, it's right? massive cultural um, appropriation on the grand scale. Um, and yet, um, in the 19th century, um, it's possible that doing what he did could be a way of uh, uh, paying his respects, right? Um, so standards of how you should relate to a culture have changed since the 19th century in a way that makes our assessment of mm-hmm. uh what of his life's work whether he forged this work or not yeah. very different right indeed indeed and I, I suppose one of the things that complicates the authorship question even more is that Durbino didn't do this entirely by himself if he did mm-hmm. you know the accusation was that Durbino was messing about with his mates mm-hmm. and his mates are these dabtara these uh, unordained scholars of the church mm-hmm. and these guys are Ethiopian mm-hmm. they almost certainly helped him with his girls a lot mm-hmm. and if this was a forgery it was probably a collaborative one right which perhaps slightly eases the case of you know the accusation of cultural appropriation or insensitivity or something in that sense mm-hmm. but on the other hand you know it really does say that this was um you know, we don't just have one author. We don't just have one potential forged author, but now maybe we have more than one author mm-hmm, who maybe mm-hmm. forged it as well. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's another case, a sort of limit case, I think, for particularly for philosophical authorship. You mm-hmm. don't have many co-authored, mm-hmm. you know, classics, at least in the history of philosophy. Right, right. Oh, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. You know, in the 21st century, um, uh, I think we have kind of cracked down on some tendencies that I'm old enough to remember mm-hmm. from the late 20th century yeah. when there were currents of postmodernism that hypothesized and indeed celebrated the death of the author. Yeah. Um, these days, I think with uh, our extreme jealousy of our intellectual property, mm. um, I feel like uh, we have cracked down on on that and we are not living in uh the legacy of postmodernism as we understood it in the 20th century anymore mm-hmm. from that point of view or in that way of thinking it was a mistake in the first place to try to uh, uh rigidly associate texts with individual authors yeah. because in the end anyway everything is so to speak collaborative mm-hmm. even if you don't acknowledge it so uh, do you feel like we should go back to that 
spirit of things is that part of what you have in mind when you when you suggest it doesn't matter so much yeah i i guess what i had in mind is halfway between the sort of postmodern collaborative playful stuff mm-hmm. and uh, very hard-headed analytic mm-hmm. it doesn't matter who wrote it let's just look at the right, arguments yeah, on the yeah. page right yeah caring about who wrote the text is the genetic fallacy right right let's yeah. get the arguments let's yeah. formalize it let's see if we you know if the arguments are any good yeah and if they're any good, who cares who wrote them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think there are, there are multiple ways of sort of getting at that. And I want to push back at that because people only seem to care about who wrote it. Right. And the thing itself is interesting. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's that's weird, isn't it? Because, yeah, it's like it simultaneously reverberates with postmodernism and analytic yeah, rigor at the same Gilbert time. Harman and Roland Barthes to be shaking hands <laughs> in, that, in that strange way. Right. That's fascinating. But obviously we're working working in a political context yeah. right, today, yeah. right? And um, it's a charged political context. And uh, you might say it doesn't matter, yeah. but our universities and mm-hmm. um, the um, uh, drive for greater inclusiveness and for de-Eurocentrization mm-hmm. of the canon and so on and so on makes it matter whether you want yeah. it to or not, right? So <laughs> what do you say that than to the people who care very much about representation. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I suppose a contrast with uh, the philosopher that you mentioned earlier, Amo, is quite mm-hmm. an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Because Amo is somebody who, beyond the virtue of most certainly existing, yeah. was most certainly an African. Mm-hmm. Right? He was, yeah. he was born in, you know, he was from Axiom, Zediak was from Axum. Right. Um, but whilst he was most certainly an African who was born in Africa... His work, as far as I can tell, doesn't have too much to to do with his experience as right. an African, uh, right. either as somebody from the African continent or somebody um, living as an African in Europe. Mm. Um, his work is, as far as I understand it, fairly run-of-the-mill, 18th century academic philosophy. Exactly. Whereas, so, you know, we can, we can want to include um, Amo in this, even though he's doing work which... You know, if he was, you know, just from Halle, might not be that interesting. We right. can choose to include him because of where he's from and what he looked like. Mm-hmm. And then we have, on the other, ca- on the other hand, let's say that it is written by Durbino. We have a text which is written in an African language, which is explicitly uh, relating to um, issues of importance to its contemporary African context, including issues like European political influence and domination. Um, but which in that case is written by a European. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I would just say that if we're thinking about wanting to expand the canon of philosophy, Durbino might be more interesting than Amo. I mm-hmm. mean, I just think yeah. that it's, it's not irrelevant that this thing is written in an African language right? and that it's reflecting on a particular, a particular historical context. I think that for both of them with Zeriakob, um, you know, as a character, as an alter ego, as a actually existing philosopher. Because also, if Zeri Jacob is a 17th century philosopher, he's in very close contact with European scholars. You know, this yeah. is a sort of hybrid Euro-Ethiopian or Ethiopian thing. Yeah, yeah. All of these thinkers can be usefully thought about kind of at the intersection of these things rather than just sort of saying for the purposes of this reading list, we have an African philosopher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't want to 
dwell on my own views in this matter, but I've always felt that the um, uh, uh, exclusive preoccupation with representation of a particular identity, as we understand identity mm-hmm. today, overlooks the fact that anyone in the history of philosophy was involved in let's say, networks of intellectual exchange Mm -hmm. that extend far beyond their uh, particular uh, ethnic or cultural or linguistic context. And that includes both Amo and Zara Jacob, and it also includes Leibniz and Descartes, right? Even though Leibniz was more uh, uh, ready to admit it than Descartes was, it includes absolutely every canonical figure in the history of philosophy, right? So, in that respect, um, you know, philosophers are not ever diplomats or spokespeople representing a particular culture. Right? Absolutely, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, Zeriakob would not be a very good representative of a particular kind of Ethiopian intellectual culture because he comes out and says that he thinks it's, you know, naff for the most part. He really <laughs> right. doesn't like it. But right. to be fair to him, he's entirely consistent. You know, the Copts right. are wrong, the Ferenj are wrong, the Muslims are wrong, the Jews are wrong. Right, right, um, right. They're, yeah. they're all equally wrong. Yeah. And, I mean, the thing that you said was interesting about, um, you know, not necessarily wanting to focus on uh, the particular, uh, you know, identity of a particular thinker in particular, if the identity is one that maybe doesn't mean the same then as it did now. Because mm-hmm. I think the same thing could certainly go for the identity of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what philosophy means now and the sort of things that we might want to include in a philosophy syllabus now would not have been the same right. as the kind of popular philosophy that might have been big, you know, Back in Europe or in or in Ethiopia in the in the Middle Ages, right? And Inci- thing- incidentally, I have a course description for Amo from the University of Jena in 1736 that he wrote this himself. It's in his own handwriting, and among the things that he teaches in his Introduction to Philosophy course is palm reading. Mm. And this was not African philosophy. This was German philosophy in 1736 of the sort that you would get as a typical university student. So it's important to bear in mind how much yeah, yeah. things have changed. But whereas, sorry to no, interrupt no, no. you. Whereas on the other hand, Zeri Jacob has a big polemic against, you know, a stargazing, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, all of these sorts of suspicion and mm-hmm. things like that. But he never once calls himself a philosopher, right. even though the word is there for, right. for him to pick up if he right. wants to. Right, because it comes via Arabic, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's falsifier in just the <laughs> same way, and mm-hmm. there are you know many many attested uses of it already. But he never chooses to call himself that, even mm-hmm. though he's against all of those things that counts as philosophy in Yenna over a mm-hmm. hundred years later. Right. But the thing, the thing, sort of about the the sort of connection between the identity of philosophy and the identity of the philosopher that's a bit tricky is. Um, some some of my colleagues in uh, Addis Ababa University are very interested in sort of the intellectual precursors that come before Zeri Jacob, who were mm-hmm. certainly uh, Ethiopian thinkers. There's no debate about whether they existed and whether they're Ethiopian or not. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that what they did doesn't seem to count as philosophy. On right. thing. And they don't like the idea that we're always focusing on the Hatata, something mm-hmm. that is easily right. recognisable by Western philosophy departments as philosophy mm-hmm. rather than these earlier thinkers who are mm-hmm. doing something else right. um, but that really are, you know, that, that are significant. And the problem there is just that, you know, if we, if we take diversifying the canon of philosophy to simply meaning adding more thinkers from particular 
identity groups mm. rather than really questioning what that right. very thing we're talking about is. Right. We're going to be missing the opportunity to really engage right. with other intellectual yeah. traditions yeah. and the stuff that might be there in a much more radical way, not yeah. just saying we've got someone who does what we already recognize right. philosophy right. to right. be, but who's from Ethiopia. Right. We can say, why don't we actually redefine our understanding of philosophy based on what has been considered philosophy right. in Ethiopia more generally? Right, right, right. Yeah, the, the uh, diversification or inclusion efforts up until now have generally focused on traditions that already offer up materials that are easily recognizable as addressing the same questions mm. that are uh, addressed in the Western philosophical tradition, right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, we extend kind of the complement of philosophy as a label um, only to what already, because of networks of exchange or mm -hmm. because of coincidence, mm -hmm. um, already looks like what was descended from Greece and Rome, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And you're right, that would be much more radical to, um, uh, 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 reconceptualize inclusivity, not, uh, to, uh, uh extend it to people from different identity groups, mm. but to people who are asking different questions with different, uh, let's say, habits of thought um, in radically different styles. Exactly. Right? And there's some of the most interesting work in African philosophy over the last 50 years has been pushing at this question. It's to say that, you know, maybe we don't need to focus on things that are obviously recognizable, literary, argumentative, deductive. Mm -hmm. Um, discursive works of philosophy and what happens if we take a sort of broader definition um, you know what if we you know try to include say you know like Kagame does you know to, mm -hmm. to build up an impression of Bantu philosophy from yeah. the roots okay. of the language what if we take the um, you know uh, the epic poetry of the Oromo people and try mm -hmm. and get our philosophy from that you know the stuff that comes under mm -hmm. the umbrella of ethno philosophy yeah yeah and that obviously brings up all sorts of other questions about yeah. authorship because that's completely going away right so it's not just saying maybe we can have a co-authored paper this is right. saying maybe really the author of a philosophical work is an entire ethno you know is an yeah. entire group yeah of people, yeah yeah trans historical yeah. trans you know regional yeah. Of course, there are debates about this. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. No, and I mean, there are some uh, African philosophers today, like Paulin Untongi, who uh, argue that ethnophilosophy is misguided, or the notion of ethnophilosophy mm. is misguided because it requires a go-between who sets himself up as the person who's going to tell you what this or that ethne actually thinks, exactly, right? Yeah. Um, and so who gets to be the go-between then introduces another level of complexity Application, it once we accept um, uh, that there, that there could be such a thing as ethno philosophy, mm, right? Exactly. But these but these debates are actually putting you know these things into question. What yeah. can count as philosophy? What a philosophical author counts as being? Yeah. Whereas simply wanting to have more of the stuff that we already recognise as being philosophy, but just from people from all over the world, yeah. doesn't really get to that sort of right, stuff. Right, right. Yeah. Because, yeah, inevitably that then uh, leaves us with uh, a huge uh, disparity where you have some cultures that are recognized as philosophical mm -hmm. and some that are beyond the pale um, and that will inevitably be thought of as, so to speak, sub-philosophical. Exactly. Right? And it's going to go along all of the familiar lines as mm. well. It will go with, you know, literacy versus orality. It will mm -hmm. go with, you know, particular yeah. 
Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, again, I try not to divulge my own views, mm-hmm. but I've been trying to bring people around in my own way to uh, the view that it's not um, finding similar traditions that that's that's a that that would be true inclusion, but finding non-similar traditions. Uh, we're kind of trying to work towards. Uh, a conclusion here, and we didn't even get to talk about Homer and Shakespeare and parallel cases yeah. that um, that might be interesting. But indeed, I mean, really quickly, you know, we um, we don't know whether Homer existed, um, and we are very happy to take Homer as a canonical author, and even as a someone who contributed mm-hmm. significantly to the history of Western philosophy, not as a philosopher, but as someone you know, that Plato and Aristotle at least like to cite a lot. What's going on there? How did Homer slip uh, slip past the guards? <laughs> I suppose the difference is, is that he was always just so firmly entrenched while we did all think that he was one person that you couldn't possibly get rid of it afterwards. Right, yeah. Um, everybody obviously, you know, regardless of whether, you know, Homer was one person, four people, you know, 200 years of people, or, mm. you know, a figment of someone's imagination, like, we want to keep reading the Odyssey. Right. right. So mm-hmm. there's no question of, of jettisoning that. Whereas I think because, you know, not so many people know the Hatata and there are these grand claims being made for it, people want to be very sure right. of, you know, where it is before, you know, they want to they wanna go, go one way on it or the other. But I think the case is exactly the same as with right. the Odyssey, you know. Yeah. We want to read this stuff yeah. and we can talk about who the author is, but... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose uh, as someone who's primarily an early modernist myself, I mean, I noticed that there, that we bring different standards to bear for the uh, modern period than we do for antiquity, right? Yeah. And um, uh, people do argue a lot about Shakespeare, right? Mm-hmm. I suppose in part because there's some realistic hope yeah. that we can find the definitive answers. Um, whereas with Homer, it is just, um, it's just, just turned to dust by yeah. now, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So a lot has to do simply with the question of um, feasibility, right? Exactly. Yeah, and. yeah. Oh, wait, so um, briefly, you were here, you're here in Paris, and you um, were at the Bibliothèque Nationale today, and you got to spend some uh, quality time mm. today with the Hatata, the original uh, physical work on vellum. What was it like vibing with it? Oh, it was it was amazing. It was it was really really fantastic. I didn't think I was going to get an opportunity to uh, to actually have it there in front of me. Um, and Ethiopian manuscripts are incredible. So it's two uh, thick wooden boards on each end, which are bound into the folios, uh, basically with a sort of dark thread. The front cover of it is like dark red tanned leather mm. um, with these sort of, uh, you know, beautiful diagonal marks on it, a big cross over the front of the text, mm-hmm. and a bunch of little sort of uh, decorative patterns on the side. And, you know, it's it's quite rough sort of uh, vellum, quite rough parchment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it's just an amazing physical thing to have there and to hold in your hands. And to think about somebody sitting down there and writing, I mean, the, the versions that we have in the bibliotheque are definitely from the 19th century. Mm-hmm. We know where they were done. They were done by this sort of small group of copyists in a place called Batalehem. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just imagining people sitting down and writing this out, the skill of the scribes was really, 
really mm-hmm. striking to me. I mean, the, these these Ethiopian letters can be can be very fiddly looking. Yeah, and the yeah. consistency and just the craftsmanship of the actual thing itself is wow, that's breathtaking. Did it did it have a particular smell? No, it was no. totally odourless. It was very disappointing. <laughs> you I think wanted. everyone thought I was strange from smelling manuscripts. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, listen, um, I think we're kind of trying to get to the end here, but I think whatever, we agreed. This isn't really um, a, a, a Socratic dialogue we've been having. We don't have um, a definition. We don't have a definition. Um, I mean, I have to say I'm a, I'm a product of the 20th century. Um, I'm still pretty uh, keen on um, at least that dimension of postmodernism. Mm. Um, um, and uh, I think uh, that, um, you know, in a sense, the pre-modern world where people labored on icons or uh, 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 whatever they were doing uh, in order to glorify God um, was actually something quite beautiful. And that when you come to the modern period and people start signing their names to their work, and eventually you get theoretical elaborations of what going on, what's going on here as, you know, you have to sign your name on your painting or on your mm. book because you're a singular genius and this came out of Mm. your uh, singular exceptional talent I think that was probably a turn for the worse Um, uh, because it's just not true Um, we all have basically the same minds and some of us use them in order to create icons and books Mm. and so on and um, so authorship to my mind for that reason is kind of um, uh, 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 a distraction, right? Um, are, are, are you? Are I, you? I'm absolutely on the in same agreement page? with you there. Okay, you? and it's weird because you can call this, you can call this um, the legacy of Roland Barthes. You can say that this is just our analytic rigor as philosophers, mm-hmm. and we're focusing on the texts. Uh, you can say this is us trying to work our way back into a pre-modern Ethiopian monastic tradition mm-hmm. where no one would have thought to sign their names in the first place. In fact, the only thing that this is not is kind of. Um, uh, uh, in step with um, the r- relatively recent European tradition of signing your name. So yeah, we agree. We agree, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, I, I didn't really give you a proper introduction, and I'm feeling bad about that. Tell us who you are and what your whole deal is. <laughs> <laughs> My whole deal? Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm Jonathan Eggard. I'm in the second year of doing a PhD at King's College London. Um what else is my whole deal? You you write for the London Review of Books, don't you? No, I write for the TLS. Oh, sorry, yeah, the TLS. Humanist yeah. a little bit about all sorts of different things. Um, I'm not very good at this. I wouldn't even include my name. No authorship. I'm Jonathan Eggett, a humble right. servant of God, working for my patron Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and you're on your way to Addis Ababa soon. I hope um, so. Yeah, I hope yeah. so. The 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 next. The next, the next dry season. Ethiopia is one of the only places in the world with two rainy seasons. So oh right, right, I'll try right. Try and get in in between that. In between and, uh, the rainy seasons. And who knows? I might end up finding a manuscript somewhere yeah, that tells yeah, me yeah. that this thing was was written in 17th century Ethiopia, after all. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll have to talk again about that. Um, 
next when you when you make a discovery. So uh, once again, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, we've been talking with Jonathan Egged about uh, authorship and uh, related matters, and this is what is X. I'm your regular host, Justin E. H. Smith. Uh, this is a podcast for The Point magazine, and uh, we will be back again next time. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks. Thanks.